you know, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life. And, and I like what you're saying. If my interpretation of what I'm reading isn't giving me life, then it's not coming from the Father. The Gospel Part 2, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I'm here with my friends Jim Durkin. Good evening. And Michael Harden. Hello. And I'm Lauren Rosser. And last week we had a very interesting discussion about the gospel and uh, just unraveling so many of the, the myths, the, the ways it's been twisted. But what we were talking about with the gospel last week was just really good, unwinding um, so much of the baggage attached to it on how if, if uh, as Michael and Jim have, have been sharing that, you know, if, if the gospel has fear attached to it, it's not the gospel. If the gospel has violence attached to it, it's not the gospel. And a really good conversation. And so I want to pick that up again, because again, just like when we talked about the cross, this is one of those where there's so much that we can just keep going with. And, and we should, because this is the message we're supposed to be carrying. And uh, I, I love how we, we read in Acts that Paul presented his gospel to the apostles, you know, we, we need to know what is the message we're carrying, and is it something that that is um, Jesus centered and cross centered, crucified, and uh, and and should be the message we're carrying? Because if the message is wrong, then we shouldn't even be delivering it. So so let's go ahead and just dive back into this. So um, I'm just going to throw it out there again, um, just to pick up on any thoughts that you guys have. Michael, why don't you start it off? Okay, <clears throat> so when we when we discuss the gospel, um, again, it's been my suggestion that we have to begin with the cross. We have to begin with the event of the cross. We have to recognize that there are two sides to the cross. There's the anthropological, human, sinful side. That is, we are scapegoating Jesus. We are using him um, uh, in order to re-ground our cultural community on victims. Okay. The other side is the divine side. It's the side you don't see in the paintings, and that's that the Father is reconciling the world to God's self in Christ. How? Because the Son imitates the Father and says, Father, forgive them. I, they don't know what they're doing. So the gospel begins with Christ crucified, and this is, this is because that's the way the gospel has to begin with the Gentiles. With the Jews, the gospel doesn't begin with Christ crucified. It begins with his fulfillment of the promises— to the fathers, moves to then the message and the acceptance or rejection of that message of the kingdom, and and then uh, we know the rest of the story. But for the Gentiles, Israel's backstory is is just that. It's a backstory, but the cross of Christ from Paul's perspective and the writer of the fourth gospel's perspective is seen as an event in world history. It says something about the entirety of human culture, human civilization, and everything. So we have to begin at the cross. All of our knowledge begins there, and, and I've discussed this in lots of places. The other piece that's going to be very, very important for us is the recognition that what goes by the gospel in modern Western culture is not the gospel. The gospel is non-sacrificial in character because the Father doesn't require or desire sacrifice in any way, shape, or form. And Jesus is not uh, uh, God's sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus is our sacrifice to, to propitiate what we think is an angry deity. But that but we don't recognize he's the son of the father. And we're not causing the deity anger. We're creating grief. So if we keep some of these things in mind, the difference between the sacrificial and the non-sacrificial and the, the message to the Gentiles, which is what we all are, uh, begins with the cross. And we see that both in Paul and in, in John. Remember the Gospel of John is the 
gospel where you got the Greeks say, hey, we would like to see Jesus. And Jesus says, that's my cue. I'm going to die, seed into the ground, you know, kind of thing. And so, yeah, I would just say we have to keep those. And the third thing I would put in here is that uh, the first thing Christians want to do is go, but the Old Testament. And so at some point, maybe even in a separate session, if we don't have time this one, we're going to have to deal with the Old Testament. We're going to have to deal with the question of what is the Bible? What's the nature of the Bible? What's the relationship between the Testaments? How did Jesus understand uh, his scriptural tradition? How does uh, how do the New Testament writers use their scriptural tradition? Do they all have the same views and all of this? And we're going to have to get this out. And we're especially... Uh, for the evangelicals who are going to want to go, you guys are Marcionite. You're throwing out the Old Testament. We have to be able to show them, no, in fact, we're not. Exactly. Now, that, you raised a whole lot of good points. And it's interesting because um, it was actually through um, things that you put out and then some books that Steve Crosby recommended to me that was the first time that I, I even realized that the early church wasn't, as you put it, wasn't the happy, clappy, perfectly united group that, you know, we we so often, the way I was taught it was basically, in the Old Testament, you had the Jews, and it's almost like they were kind of single-minded, everybody on the same page in the Old Testament, and then then you have some disagreements here and there between Judea and Israel, but then you come to the New Testament, and then the New Testament, everybody's, everybody's on the same page in complete agreement, and everything's perfect and wonderful, and then uh, it, it was it was interesting realizing that uh, just through things that you've put out and then uh, and then others that that <laughs> there was actually you have different voices even going through the new testament and so that's even something when we talk about the gospel we have to sort through as well because are we embracing and this is this is going to kind of trip people out but but are we embracing say like Matthew's perspective or are we embracing Paul's perspective or are we embracing uh, the writer of the fourth gospel's perspective, which kind of is, if correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of more in line with, with Paul's, wasn't it? Uh, well, yeah, yes. But for me, the question is not, I'm happy to embrace Paul's perspective. I'm happy to embrace Matthew's perspective or Mark's perspective. I mean, um, for me, when I'm dealing with the perspective of the biblical writers, all I'm asking is, are they bearing faithful and authentic witness to Jesus? That's all exactly. I'm asking. And, 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 they, and I would say they all are doing the best they can. However, those who bear witness within Judaism are bearing witness differently than those who are bearing witness to Christ outside of Judaism. That was beautifully said because it, it really shows that something that we almost remove is that they were human just like we are. And, and so they, the writers, and so they bring their perspective in, Mm -hmm. into what they write. So it's not a matter of, are they right? Are they wrong? You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, they bring their own background, their own voice, their own perspective into it. And so I love what you said that it's, it's not a matter of, um, we live in such a, a black and white us versus them society, but I love how it's, how you put it, that it's like hearing the voices of what everybody, because these are all witnesses, and what are they bringing to the table? So that that's awesome. So, um, so Jim, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, just to piggyback off of what you're saying right there, uh, Lauren, uh, in their humanity, they see things differently. They interpret what they're seeing differently. Mm-hmm. And... I, I think we, we many times in the evangelical circles, we take the whole of the Bible and it's, it's all one complete package, all 66 books, one complete package, all exactly, you know, dictated word for word, you know. Uh, and so when we're reading, we're reading Mark's account, we're reading Matthew's account. We're reading Luke's account. We're reading, you know, and and, and we don't uh, allow ourselves to see that they're speaking and, and interpreting through their own lens, through their own upbringing, their own uh, background, etc. How how it's affecting them, and and I think if we if we allow ourselves to do that. The words that you used, uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, the writer of the, the fourth gospel, his, his gospel, 
Paul's gospel. It's like, well, wait a minute, they didn't have separate gospels. Well, yes, they did. It wasn't separate in, in, in the overall, but actually when you break it down and interpret it, they're looking at it from different angles, and, and from the angle that they're looking at it, it presents a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, that discussion uh, probably as far as we want to go on that today, uh, but when we do start talking about like the Bible and, and the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, uh, Judaism, etc., cetera, uh, we'll probably get into that a whole lot more in detail. But um, I'm just thinking about actually taking it, uh, kicking the can down the road a little bit further. There are many scriptures in the New Testament that use the word all, and that word all is all-inclusive, all being in Christ, for instance, and, and Christ died for all, and uh, Romans 5, uh, just like in Adam all, so in Christ, or second Adam, all. And, and we see this word all several times, and in understanding the gospel, to, to me, how do we interpret that word all? Okay, I, the easy way would be to say, well, it's all means all. Okay, but for instance, um, a few weeks ago, uh, I was making a comment uh, along along these lines, and I and I said something about uh, uh, all being in Christ. I don't remember exactly how I said it, and then I said that therefore I see all as, you know, the church or the body of Christ. And Michael uh, corrected me or, you know, he said, wait a minute, are you saying that? And and so there, there's a question there. And it, it kind of, if all are reconciled to God through the cross, are we saying all are saved? I mean, that's, you know, that's a hot hot bed issue, but it factors into the gospel because our evangelical brethren want to start at the position of all are damned. That's, yep, that's Augustine and Calvin and Luther and the yeah. entire Western tradition. Yeah, Sure. And I read something, I don't think it was uh, David Harwood, but uh, it was something... Uh, you know, this gospel is not a shotgun wedding, you know. <laughs> Get married to my son or else you're going to hell, <laughs> you know. And uh, it's it's like uh, this is a love story. And so in that love story, as we unpack it, um, are there any buts to that love story? Are there any, well, all are in but not really kind of and that's that's all part of this question of what is the gospel i love jim that you opened your own can of worms let me just say that (laughs) i'm always the one who gets blamed for it but jim did it this time blame him (laughs) go ahead michael i did did have one comment a person sent me a, a personal uh message and said i love that you process out loud (laughs) <laughs> so at least I have one fan. Let's put it right. that way. <laughs> I, I guess I'm glad I'm out of the uh, communication loop on this. My, I'm, I'm fairly certain that some of my students listen to this podcast, um, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't have to deal with the negativity like you guys do. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You want to take any of those uh, any of those uh, questions I asked? First of all, with just all means all, okay? Um, Hoi polloi in Greek literally is is the many, the multitude, okay? But but, uh, the Semitic languages don't have the word all, and so the many um, becomes uh, a a colloquialism, another way of saying all. So first of all, those that want to go, yeah, but Paul says many. No, 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 no. This is okay. Let's get rid of that. Number two, um, uh, we have to uh, 
read a text like Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21, which is the text we're talking about. Yes. Um, through the kind of lens that Paul has uh, is going to lay out. For, so, for example, Romans 1 through 4 is a diatribe or a dialogue between Paul and either the false Christian teacher who's come to Rome critiquing Paul's mission or is on his way to Rome to critique Paul's mission. I really think that we're talking about Peter here as the interlocutor. And so, at least following the recent research, like I do, um, I am persuaded that in chapters 1 through 4, we, we have two versions of what constitutes gospel. The false teachers from the Jewish Christian perspective, which you can find in Romans one eighteen to 32, that diatribe, that's not Paul speaking. He's, he's paraphrasing, quoting, as it were, the false teacher. And then he's going to pick that apart. And as you go through Romans 2 and 3, Paul is arguing against this false teacher. So there are things that it just because Paul's writing them and because we don't know how to read Deatribe, we think Paul means this in his theology. And when you when you do that, you turn Paul into this bipolar, demented, um, double-sided thinker. But by recognizing Romans 1 through 4 is, is this articulation that moves us away from this Second Temple Jewish perspective on the Gentiles to the universal character of Abraham's pistis, trust. Okay, and that's what Paul's arguing is Abraham's the father of us all. And what, what's he the father of? He's the father of pistis, trust. Then the, 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 when you get to Romans 5, that's the first time now Paul's going to say, and here's my theology. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, what, what the, chapter was that? Chapter five. five. Five, okay. And he does this beautiful thing at the beginning of chapter five and and cuts right to the heart of the matter where he, has, he talks right about suffering and character and hope. And then he moves into the um, second Adam text of 5, 12 through 21, where all means all, Okay. And our, again, our, part of our problem is we, we have in the Christ, Christians in general, if you tell them the words God, Jesus, church, sin, salvation, okay, they've loaded those terms with all kinds of meaning. Right. My, my lifelong task has been to say to the Christians, vacuum out all the presuppositions and baggage you put into those categories. Vacuum those out and allow all those categories to be redefined by the revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's the frame. That's where we decide. What's a God like? Oh, we have to go here. What's a Spirit do? Oh, we, rather than um, doing all the goofy stuff we do and loading this terminology up with baggage that... that <laughs> has nothing to do with the message. So I first I agree with Jim that all means all. But now I'll throw one out at you, Jim. You ready? Yeah. All scripture is inspired. <laughs> God. Now, I'm worried, I get to have a little fun here with Jim because I know he hasn't read this piece of my work. <laughs> so how do you deal I, with that all? <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I, I've read other pe- people's uh, handling of that. Um, and I have not come to a, uh, I haven't come to a final conclusion on the matter. I really can, haven't. Can I take um, a stab at it? Yeah. You may. Just cause I, I don't know if this is true cause I haven't read the original languages or anything, but I thought what, what I heard somebody say, a friend of mine said was that the actual, uh, interpretation of that verse is all scripture that is inspired. <laughs> I see. So now we're moving to translation. So is that on the right track? Well, it's, okay, so what that does is that opens up now the question of the Greek text, okay? Pasagraphe thetnustos is an arthris, that is, there's no article there, okay? Um, So the writer, um, and there's no verb in there in that sentence either. So one can legitimately translate that text as 
all scripture that is inspired by God is useful for. In which case the writer is saying, not all scripture is inspired by God, but some of it is. And that which is, is useful for reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, and doctrine. Okay, now the question is, does the writer of the pastoral epistles provide us with that hermeneutic to discern? And the answer is no. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so that's the first. The second piece, all scripture is inspired by God. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. But when you go back eight little verses before, 2 Timothy 3.8, um, the writer's talking about people that are disobedient. And he says, even as Janus and Jambres were with Moses. What? You go back to the Hebrew text, and it talks about Pharaoh's musicians, uh, musicians, magicians, but doesn't give them any names. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't. doesn't give them any names. The Targums, the Aramaic paraphrases that were orally recited and learned and memorized, the Aramaic paraphrases, the quote, living Bible of the first century, <laughs> gives these guys names. Now, okay. the writer takes these names from the Targums. All the rest of his quotations from the Hebrew Scripture, from the Jewish Bible, are from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So if you want to say all Scripture is inspired by God, you cannot tie that to a verbal theory of dictation that God told them to write in Hebrew and told them to write in Greek, because this, this text here vitiates that whole thing, the very fact the writer only quotes the Septuagint, and he quotes the Targums, indicates he's not interested in the original manuscripts, like our conservative and fundamentalist friends. He doesn't care. He is being illuminated by the Holy Spirit, in, I would say in his head, and thus passing on um, uh, the Christian tradition as best as he, well, I'm sure it's a he knows how. There's no way a woman wrote the patriarchal pastorals <laughs> that's true wow that's really good um and and it's interesting because um also going back to romans um when you were talking about that w- one of the things i remember you sharing that that really jumped out that i think it would be beneficial to our listeners was you talked about when just like now how you were talking about how paul is is um he's using a literary technique where he's um He's he's doing the voice of his opponent, and yeah. then he and then his own voice. And unfortunately, yeah. the way the the scripture's written, we don't because it was meant to be read out loud. So somebody correct. reading out loud would change the voices. Um, do one voice for the opponent and one voice for Paul, right. and uh, and we don't get that. And unfortunately, no. the way it's written in our in our Bibles, we don't see which part is. It's not noted which part is Paul, which part is is the opponent. And right. and one thing I remember you bringing out is Romans chapter one is the the adversary the opponent that he's mm-hmm. he's speaking and so you you had shared that um, that what is written there it's that a, a Jew who's sitting in the in the fellowship would would say yes 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 that is what Gentiles are like yep mm-hmm. that is Gentiles mm-hmm. and then Gentile would be going we're not like that. Right. That's that's not us. That's not right. us. And so what you're dealing with is basically a racist text, in a sense, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Um, it's that it's it's a, a divisive text. But I love that also you pointed out that at least thought for thought that comes from the book of the book of wisdom, which is not in the Protestant Bible. Correct on all of the above. So, so it raises this whole other issue then about the sixty-six book in the Bible being inspired. But, but here's Paul in Romans chapter one quoting from one of the books that we've removed from the Bible. So, it's was that not inspired? Right. Um, is it inspired but not included? And and so that really opens up a whole other can, can of worms as well. But, but well, I'd I, love go ahead. I, I actually have a commentary on um, the wisdom of Solomon. Where because of that congruence, the author argues that this was a pre-Christian Pauline document. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't think it holds water. Right. But it, but it is interesting. To, I mean, it, the, the correspondence in language, tone, and everything is absolutely there. The writer's quoting what we call a trope, a standard view of, you know. But the, here's the thing. If the Christian comes to the text 
and and I, this is true of every single Christian I've ever met. As I've and I've even had two conversations today where this question came up. Okay, Michael. So if the Bible isn't all of the Word of God, but some of it is, how do you know which parts God's and which parts isn't? Right? Yeah. So what, what are they asking? They're asking a question about hermeneutics. What's what's? How do I discern the text? Well, I guess I could say, gee, I've studied hermeneutics for 40 years and language and linguistics, and I've looked at philosophy and da 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 right? But how about if I simply say, well, hmm, okay, so I'm not Jewish, but I'm interested in how Jesus the Jew interpreted his text. I'm interested in how Paul the Jew interpreted his text. I'm interested in how the fourth gospel writer who's a Jew interprets those texts. Let's go look at how they interpret those texts. And when I go do that, first thing I notice is they all add stuff and they omit stuff. Okay? That's the first thing they do. And I tell my students, you know, when you're reading a text, you're translating a text, don't add anything, don't take anything out. If, if you have to translate, choose to translate against your bias. So if your bias is to translate a text this way, but it can go the other way, translate, always translate against your bias. Oh, that's good. Right? So here's the here's the deal, though, is that the Christian goes, what's your hermeneutic? And I say, well, I want to know what Jesus' hermeneutic was. That's why I went to Luke 4, and I did all that work on, the, on gutting out the Nazareth text and showing that Jesus had a very, very clear hermeneutic. And, and I was able to demonstrate that in other passages in the synoptics. And then I was able to show that, Paul deploys that exact same hermeneutic in a different vein, and so does the writer of the fourth gospel. So what is that hermeneutic? What allows me to say whether something is the Word of God or isn't the Word of God? And it's very simple. Fundamentally, it boils down to, does a text bring life or destroy? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Does a reading or an interpretation of a text bring life or destroy? The text is the text. Is the text. Does the reading of the text bring life? Because let me put it this way. You know the story of Joshua, son, uh, 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 the book of Joshua, the story of Achan in chapter 7. Yeah. That's a story that you can preach. And if you assume that Joshua is correct and God is correct, and if you believe that Achan stole all the booty, well, you can talk about it that way. And then if you're a pastor, you can talk about sin in the camp and why the church is going to hell in a handbasket and we've got to find the sinner and root him out. we that's that's a misreading of a text. However, you could take that same text and show that Achan is a scapegoat in the classic mythic tradition, and just like ancient myths, the victim agrees that their punishment was just. But we know from the Gospels that that isn't the case, and we can see Achan is a prototype of, of, of being the scapegoat victim, just as Jesus was. And we can say, when society create scapegoats. They always mythologize them and make sure that everybody's on the same page, including the victim, so that, you know, and God, so that we're justified in killing them. And this is the behavior we are called to stop engaging in. Now, that's a healthy reading of the text. Same text, two different readings. One brings death, the other brings life. And if Paul's correct in 2 Corinthians 3, that the grammar, the letter of the text, is death. What he's saying is when you cling to the letter of the text, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You will always end up in death because there's a lot of stuff God says like, I'm going to kill this group, I'm going to kill that person, I want you to kill these people, you go kill those. There's a lot of stuff that God says that's destructive. And I think what we have, the Jesus and, and Paul and, and the fourth gospel, especially those writers, recognizing is just because it says God says doesn't mean God said it. And now comes the challenge. If that's the case, where has God spoken? Where's that, where's that North Star that we can all use? Oh, it's quite simple. Christ crucified, risen and ascended. Bam, bam, right there. Anything that you can't frame out from there, I don't know. It's not Christian theology. It, it might be religious thinking with Jesus for near, but it's not Christian theology. I think we get back to the um, 
interpretation and and our own uh, proclivity, what we've been taught, how we've been taught to think. Uh, we, when you think in terms of all scriptures given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth, it's interesting. Um, you can take uh, uh, one translation uh, and and read it read a scripture in one translation, open up another translation and it seems to be saying something completely different. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so uh, if, if the one translation is the one that your group happens to think is the, you know, the right, the Holy Spirit inspired, you know, then anybody who's reading that other, you know, Bible from hell, you know, is, is, you know, not reading the right translation, and and just go on uh, Google and and bring up almost any translation, uh, other other than maybe the authorized, you know, and you're going to find all kinds of negative about why that is so wrong, and 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 and, and there are some bad translations out there. I'm not saying there aren't, but um, having having said that. Uh, when we when we look at scripture through the cross, when we look at scripture through what the gospel is, what you're saying, Michael, and I totally agree with you, we interpret scripture completely different. Our emphasis on it is completely different. Mm. We we. Uh, can't come up with God hates a certain group of people, therefore I hate that same group of people because in the Old Testament he killed them all, you know, or something like that, you know. And, and, uh, you know, um, except the parasites. I I don't like parasites. But... Uh, it's an old joke I used to hear from preachers <laughs> when they're talking about all the ites, the, the ites, yeah, and, and the parasites, yeah, oh, the, par- I get it. the parasites. Yeah, no. Took me a second, but I got it. it. Took me longer yeah. than a second. <laughs> Michael's like a little the slow hittites, on the, the today. The parasites. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so uh, so when we look at it through the cross. And the and and I like how Michael, you keep bringing us back to the cross. How can we get away from it? Uh, our gospel has to start there. God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to Himself, not saying, "Okay, this group over here don't like them. This group over here, they're on their way to hell. This group over here, uh, there might be a chance for them if they say the right <laughs> prayer." At the right time, in the right way, you know, it's it's our gospel is not only is our gospel all inclusive, uh, it reaches every person. It gives good news to every person. Uh, just take a a, a Bible verse. Um, you know, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give you life. And, and I like what you're saying. If my interpretation of what I'm reading isn't giving me life, then it's not coming from the Father. That interpretation is is skewed. It's, it, I'm, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's coming from the devil, but, but it's certainly coming from human thought. It's coming from human reasoning. It's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's not coming from the Father. Yes. Um, so a cu- couple things. One is um, there are translators and there are translators. <laughs> um, uh, and, and unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, we live in a world where Christians, because they believe, you know, um, the, the Bible was verbally dictated. And if they have their Strong's Concordance and their Thayer's Lexicon, why they can go discern root meanings and they come up with the most bewildering nonsense I've ever seen. I wish we could burn all the Strong's Concordances and the Thayer's Lexicons, and we could put a ban in place that says, unless you're willing to become fluent in Caney Greek, uh, don't bother. That's number one. Number two, um, as a translator of the biblical text now for 48 years, I have to tell you, anybody that tries, 
attempts to translate the biblical text properly, that is using good philology, um, uh, oh, d deep developed awareness of grammar and syntax, I praise them. So, for example, um, there there are some some awful translations. Most translations are done either by committee or by individuals. The best translations, I think, are those by individuals. David Bentley Hart's Ann Nyland's uh, translation, I really like, the Source New Testament. Um, J.B. Phillips. Mm-hmm. Uh, older translation, but really, really remarkable in many ways. And it is not a paraphrase. It is a translation. Um, and I prefer those over committees um, because the process of Bible translation in committees is you have your scholars familiar with the original languages, and they do the rough translation, and then that gets polished, polished, polished. And then it gets sent over to the committees that are specialists in the um, language they're looking to communicate in, but also the age group they're looking to communicate in. Like the NIV is specifically designed for high schoolers, the NIV. You know, the revised standard for, for like a college student. And that's why the one reads more academically than the other. Um, but by the time the, the uh, English specialists have cleaned up the text, and then the theologians come along and they're going, no, we don't want to use expiation here. We believe in propitiation. And by the time all that nonsense is finished, you, I mean, you have a translation, but it's, it's butchered in a way. Um, and then you can see where translators absolutely cannot get their heads around text. So, for example, in Jeremiah 7, um, the, the writer will say, um, uh, uh, on the day I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, I did not only command them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I commanded them to be my people, right? And the NIV translators put the word only in. On the day I brought your forefathers out of Egypt, I did not just command them or only command them. Well, only or just, however you translate, is not there in the Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint. It's on the day I brought your forefathers out of Egypt. I did not command them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. They didn't want anything to do with that. But the evangelical goes, well, wait a minute. In, in Exodus, you know, God leads the people and he gives them all the sacrificial laws. So why is Jeremiah saying God didn't write Leviticus, you know? So they have to, because they can't handle the cognitive dissonance. If there's anything the Bible is meant to do as a book, if there's anything the gospel does as a message, if there's any work the Holy Spirit does using the gospel message in the scripture, it is to create cognitive dissonance in us theologically at every turn because all we have are idols. Even our Jesus is an idol. Our God the Father is an idol. Our Holy Spirit is an idol. We've, we've taken the beauty of, of this Trinitarian God and... Um, turned that God into that which is not. And then we worship that God and think we're Christians. Man, it's, it's criminal. I, I was, in fact, I was reading something right along those lines um, this week. Somebody posted on Facebook and they were posting it as this wonderful, beautiful thing. And it was talking about how, oh, look at Revelation, you know, everything was, there was this and then that. And it was, Jesus came as a lamb, but he's coming back as a lion. Yeah, Jesus oh, yeah. came and, and everything was like exactly showing. And it was the exact idols you're talking about where, where it, it was taking, oh yeah, yeah. Jesus was this way when he came, but, right. but now we're going to add the idol to him. So no, but, but, but he's, he's violent. Oh, but no, he's vengeful. But uh, so, so it was suddenly mutating Jesus into, into us and then, or Thor or Zeus or something, and then turning around and, and going, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this lovely? And, People are going, yeah, amen. As though Jesus isn't the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews says. Right. Um, give me an idea. So I've been told by people to watch the movie The Chosen, the TV series The Chosen. Yeah. So I started it, and I'm in the episode where they're at Nazareth, <clears throat> And Jesus preaches his sermon, they're angry at him. And he says, well, why are you angry at me? He says, well, look, I'm, I'm in the time of grace now. Because they chide him for omitting the wrath of God stuff. He says, we're in the time of grace. The wrath has been put off for the future. And I thought, holy shit, they just dispensationalized a text 
that they literally reversed the exact interpretation of what Jesus was doing, and they brought in a completely anti-Jesus interpretation. And and here, but these this is the way evangelicals do, you know. And there, and by the way, the series is beautiful. I've watched several episodes. I think it's well done, well crafted. I enjoy it very, very, very much. But I am very disturbed at the way they feel free to bring this kind of stuff in, just like just like your NIV translators. The evangelicals well, I, are notorious. I, I think in that, uh, I don't think you could take on an undertaking as big as they're doing with the chosen uh, without just what we were saying about the the writing uh, of the gospels, the writing of of, of uh, accounts, and uh, it it goes through your humanity. And there are, uh, there was another line in there uh, that a person on Facebook, a friend of mine, was all up in arms about, and and I'm never going to watch another, and you shouldn't either, because in that Jesus said this, and he never said that. It's not in the Bible. It, you know, and I'm like, oh, come on, people. What I do appreciate about The Chosen, and I, I really like it. I've recommended mm-hmm. it to several people. I like how it humanizes Jesus, the disciples, the women. You know, they're, they're not all the, you know, it, 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 in evangelical circles and, and maybe other circles as well, we have this idea that, they all kind of walked on water. They all walked about six inches above the ground, you know. They're the saints, you know. They're the apostles upon the foundation of the very thing, that, you know, heaven, uh, the you know, the gates, the you know, all that stuff. And it, it's like the chosen just says, no, there's some real people with some real issues, you know. And and I I, I just happen to like that because... Uh, I can re- I can relate to humans. I have a, I have a real hard time relating to saints. <laughs> yeah, there, there were. I'm right there with you, Jim, and I, I agree with um, what you guys brought out. That that they definitely. Uh, you have to be aware. Anything you watch, it, filmmakers, writers, they're they're always going to bring their lens into what what they're creating. And so anybody who approaches any any christian film or whatever you've got to be aware you're you're reading the you're going to get the filmmaker's interpretation of of that or the events and and uh and one there were two because like you jim i liked a whole lot about it and and i haven't watched season three yet i watched one and two um there were things i really liked about it and then there was things i didn't like about it um one of the there was uh one of the problems i had was they mentioned something when they're following jesus they said something about one of the disciples makes a comment about how unorganized they are or something like that and and he says this comment about well a time is coming when when we will organize and da 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 and it was like totally like it sounded like it was like a justification for institutionalizing the church coming, you know. And I was like, okay, that that was out there. That was, you know, <laughs> just somebody inserting their view of Christianity sure. into there. And then the other one was when they're getting ready for the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that that it, it, it you could tell total mega church mentality was going into that because we're getting ready for the big sermon and the apostles are playing ushers and you know the, the way the whole whole thing was being set up that that almost turned me off from the whole series because I was like ah yuck I did not like that episode at all wow oh, I, I I especially liked uh, Jesus and Matthew taking their walks and Matthew or Jesus saying. So what if I say it this way, Matthew? And he's like, no, it would be better if you said it like this. And it's like he's rehearsing. He's, right. he's going over his notes. He's <laughs> Exactly. It's funny. I commented on that to Lily because they were doing a total pastor preparation thing. Yeah. And, and I was yeah. going, no, no. If you, yeah. if you talk to people who, just like when we start this podcast, um, it's just, just how Michael was able to rattle off the top of his head yeah. all this stuff. If something is in somebody, like at the fiber of their being, 
thing. Yeah. You, you don't have to. They they don't they don't have to rehearse it. It's just there, and and that's what kind of bothered me on that was that that it's like he's trying to you know get it all perfect. I'm like that's that's not just Jesus' message. That's Jesus. <laughs> That's that's the core of who he is. Well, so yeah, I, I just exactly. see that as something. Yeah. This is my filmmaker interpretation. I see that as something that he would be able to any conversation just say off the top of his head at a moment's notice. But at the same time, you know, if that's the worst offenses that they they do make in the making of that movie, I think they're still doing a very oh, good sure. job. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's my personal opinion. But yeah. Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to disagree that, that because the spirit will use all kinds of things, yes. uh, and not just orthodoxy to to get our attention and, and turn us. What I'm I guess, what I'm what I'm arguing here is that the Protestant tradition is not the gospel and has very little to do with the gospel. Um, the Protestant tradition, as it's evolved, especially in America. Uh, really preaches nothing more than uh, ancient Persian or Greek mythological views, but now with Christian language. And um, and until the until until the fundamentalist evangelicals, liberals, and everybody else that is part of that Protestant tradition comes to terms with this. And I'm not even talking about the Catholic Church. I mean, I'll let my Catholic theo- theologian friends uh, bust on the Catholic Church, you know, and. And uh, the same with the Orthodox tradition. I'll let my Orthodox friends bust on that tradition. Me, I'm a Protestant. I'm going to bust on the Protestants. And I, I find that admirable because one of the things that's always been a, a struggle for me is that, see, Jesus came to his own. Mm-hmm. And and notice how he would tell it like it is. He would speak the truth and they would get offended and they would get angry. And to me, the vo- the prophetic voice of the church addresses itself first. If, if you're worth any grain of salt, and that's, that's why I have trouble with politics and things like that. Because if you notice, it's always the other party, the other party, the other party. Mine's perfect. We're so beautiful. We have it so right. And to me, the voice I'll listen to, that's why my friend, uh, let me give you an example. My friend uh, Vince Coakley, he does a, he's, he's a conservative, um, but he constantly harps on his own party. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he's spoken out against them several times. And, and I'm like, you're a voice I'll listen to because you critique your own first. And 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 that's the thing that I notice that is so missing in Protestantism is that you're seen as hateful or vengeful when it's like Jesus was love and Jesus critiqued his own tradition and his own customs and and people uh, you know their their thinking processes and so it's like you're not worth a grain of salt if you're not willing to just like you said Michael when you're interpreting scripture how go the way that's not your bias I thought that was brilliant. <clears throat> yeah, well, look at it this way, Lauren. The um, whether you're liberal or conservative, uh, you're going to believe you're right, right? I mean, you, yeah. you're going to live with that wonderful Dunning Kruger effect, you know, and you're going to confirmation bias yourself into believing you're right. Uh, the um, the the thing is, if you if you ask the wrong questions, you get the wrong answers. So now I want to pose a question here to Jim. Um, when we say a series like The Chosen humanizes Jesus, is it that we no longer lack the ability to read the Gospels and see the human Jesus? If Is it because the church has emphasized the divinity at the expense of the humanity of Jesus, and if so, where did this come in and where did this arise? And then the third question is, what does it mean to be human? And almost always when people say, say they, 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 this makes Jesus look human, what they mean is it makes, it makes him look weak, fallible, uh, prone to, to error and mistakes. That's what they mean. Okay? Because they're defining human over against the category of platonic divine perfection. I'm, I'm wondering, what do you mean when you say the series humanizes Jesus? Well... I'll get off the uh, series for a second and and just share some of the things that I've seen years ago. You know, the the, the story, and we, we, we always like to talk about the, you know, Jesus uh, sleep in the boat, you know, and, and 
he rises up and he rebukes the winds and the wave because, you know, he's, he's Jesus, you know. And, you know, the, the disciples are like, what is this? Even the winds and the wave obey him. And we build our sermon on that. We don't realize that if you if you look into the what I call the backstory, the reason he was asleep in the boat, in my in my opinion, is because he had just spent three days teaching. The crowd had pressed him. He had been healing the sick. He looks at Peter at one point and he says, "Look, there's a boat. Get me to the other side. Get me away from people. Let me sleep for a little while. I'm tired." And and. That's what I'm talking about in, in, in essence of hu- humanizing him. The man got tired. Yes, he healed the sick. Yes, he taught for three days. Yes, he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, he rebuked the winds and the wave. Yes, he, he walked on water. He also ate. <laughs> he also got tired. Also, you know, and 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 I think I think there's a, a sense in which sometimes my evangelical brethren are afraid to admit that he was a man that went through all the things that men go through, and and um, that's what I mean by humanizing him, and and I think the. The uh, movie, uh, The Chosen, I think, does a very good job at that, of just, you know, seeing that he, when he sat down with individuals, um, you know, was it, was it Andrew who, he, you know, he said, I saw you sitting under the tree, and, you know, in, in The Chosen, in that scene, He's sitting with them. He's talking to them. And and they show the backstory. They show Andrew being very discouraged, very despondent at some things going on in his life. And he's like, God, where are you? Do you even see me? And and I I, I realize that's conjecture. It, it it isn't in scripture, but still. And then Jesus sitting there and he said, Yeah, I saw you. I saw when you were sitting under that tree, you know, and, 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 and I look at that and I say, you know, that's, if he were walking on the earth today, that's the kind of Jesus or God I want to follow. One that actually is human. One that's uh, affected by the things that affect me. So I guess that's what I'm, what I mean by that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's helpful. I um, when I when I talk about being human, um, and I ask you know what does it mean for Jesus to be human? Um, I I accept obviously the physical limitations of the human body and that he experienced those. Yeah. Um, however, um, I I, do, I am reluctant to attach he, to the category of human um, the negative descriptors of. Um, uh, weak, um, uh, mistake prone. Um, uh, I, I don't know what else to, to use in, in this category. You know, here's the here's the I mean here's the fact. Um, uh, the early for the early church, once Jesus was ascended, um, he he becomes a more than human figure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the early church then spent 400 years trying to figure out how to relate humanness and divinity together in this one person with all of their bad math and, and metaphysics. What they failed to do was to say, to be human, as Jesus is human, is to be to have come to the place where one's conscious awareness was only of the Father. And what the Father was doing and saying to do. The mission that had been given by the Father. To be fully human is to be completely conscious of the Father at any given moment. And so I don't I don't see humanness as something bad, but as something good. But then the second thing the early church did and they is they when they took the virgin birth stories 
And they did the exact opposite of what the evangelicals. The evangelicals say, see, the virgin birth proves that Jesus was divine, God was the Father, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The early church only ever used the virgin birth stories to, to talk about the humanity of Jesus. He was a human being. And then by the time you get to the fourth century, Jesus is so exalted. I mean, this is after 300, 400 years of church history. He is so exalted that that really his humanness we've lost touch with. And so what does the early church do? We need a human mediator between ourselves and, and, and God. And if Jesus is so much like God that he's really not like us, no matter what the epistle to the Hebrews says, we need human mediators. So what do we do? We create what Peter Brown calls the cult of the saints. I've got this local bishop. He was a martyr for the Christian faith. He's a saint. I'm going to imitate him. Now I have, you see, I have that, that proximate saint that I can imitate because Jesus is so far gone. Right. Right. And we still do it today with celebrities. Wow. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, wow. and what you're, what you're saying, that's an aspect that I appreciate. I, I really, really appreciate what you're saying that to you, Christ's humanity or it, it is, that he became fully reliant on the Father. That's right. And and I I, I like that. Uh, I like that because, as I said in a podcast some weeks ago, that becomes my example. Yes. I can I can become fully reliant on the Father. Jesus yeah. showed me how. That's exactly right. And and I think that's an aspect that um, we don't always, not only do we not always appreciate, we don't even acknowledge. Right. That, uh, wait a minute, this is, (laughs) this, and and that factors into our gospel. That's part of our gospel. Yes. Yes. It's not escapism, it's relationship. Yes. Yeah. when we are relating to each other as Jesus relates to us and as the Father relates to us in non-retaliatory, non-aggressive, peaceful, loving, caring, nurturing fashions, um, we are bringing God to the world. Right. That That's when we, that's so we are vehicles of, of revelation. And so to be f- for, for, for me, Jim... Um, this is why the church is so powerless, because yeah. the Jesus it bears witness to doesn't exist. The mm-hmm. God it bears mm-hmm. witness to doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it's really fundamentally powerless, and why the charismatics have to go into some kind of steroid-driven, overblown, super-hype thing, and why the Baptists and the Calvinists have to go into some super-blown megachurch model and and others into the super overblown. I mean, all of these theologies of glory that Protestantism has moved into, and so you can be on the left, how about political correctness groups and different groups that are championing different rights and castigating others and this, all of that, all of that is, is they, they worship a false Jesus. And their, and their Jesus isn't human. They try to humanize him. They try to go, oh, Jesus is like us, man. Jesus cried. Oh, Jesus was a little weakling, whippy, crybaby like us. I just look at people and I go, really? Really? That's your definition of humanness? I can cry? You know? I hurt myself, Mother Mary. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, oh, my God. You know, if your definition of being a human is being weak and sinful... Uh, you're a Calvinist, you're an Augustinian, but but uh, you have a long way to go because real humanness is about being transformed by the Holy Spirit. How are we transformed by the Holy Spirit? Because we imitate the life of Christ. Where do we imitate the life of Christ? In that ethical substratum. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to those who don't do good to you. Pray for those who persecute you. That whole ethical substratum, when we practice that, we become transformed in the image of the one who we become like. And otherwise, otherwise you're just left with being an Orthodox Christian going, I believe in theosis, man. I believe in divinization. I thought I'm going to become a god. Never mind, I'm an asshole on this earth, but I'm going to be divinized because I'm Orthodox. It's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. You know, so so we. I think, I think there are ways we have to help Christians reframe everything 
Well, I, I, maybe, maybe I, I just off my rocker. No, I love how you were saying uh, that Jesus was fully human because he trusted the Father. Because yeah. what we've done in evangelicalism is we've spiritualized that. Yeah. that. No, 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 no. That's what made him hyper-spiritual. Like you said, the, the other things are what make him human you know but but that that's a that's seen as that's a a, a separate thing that's that's a spiritual side it, it goes all back to plato invading the church you know all, all his oh. all the stuff that the flesh doesn't matter and you know that that uh, we're spirit and you know all, all that all the stuff that plato injected into christianity because because right. what you're saying there michael is it's it it really makes you think about well, wait a minute to be human to be human, to be in this physical body, is to trust the Father. We yeah. don't link that. We yeah, I, we don't. Yeah. And I hope I hope that really sinks in with people. We we don't link that. We see that as like, oh no no no, the trust thing. That's that's like the 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 soul that's separate from my body thing, you know. And and but the physical thing, that's you know, that's something else. But but I like how you said no no. That's that was basically like we in, in the story. That that was what we as humanity in the garden or whatever with Adam, we're supposed to be completely right. trusting the father. Right. And Jesus brings that back that we're, he shows us, this is what it is to live, to trust the father. And I'll tell you that, that hits home in my life right now. Cause I, I spent the whole day just, we're going through all this transition and stuff. And there's a whole bunch of questions in my head. How's this going to connect with that house? And I'm working hard to get absolutes and sort everything out. And I'm telling you, it's hitting home for me right now. Cause it's like to be human, to be Christ-like, is to trust the Father. So it's okay. like, stop trying to control everything, stop panicking about everything, and trust the Father. <laughs> so, well, you know what they say, pray like a Calvinist, work like an Arminian. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Man, well, God. this was a really good discussion again, guys. And once Jim, again, Jim's we're... Not finished. Jim's got some thoughts. Yeah. I no, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there. <laughs> I I no, I, I really did wanna uh, pick up just a thought. Okay. I, I I don't I don't um Michael, you may disagree a little bit with me. I don't that's, that's all fine. good, brother. <laughs> I don't think it's either or. Okay. I really think it's both and. I, I, I think when I when I talk about the humanity of Christ, I'm really speaking against some of the things you said that we so deify him. Yes. That, that, you know, now I'm not, I, I'm not going to take it all the way to the nth degree. Like, well, he's human. He cried. He, you know, he, if he stubbed his toe, it hurt him. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm not talking on that level. It's like, give me a break. Uh, you know, but I am talking, and when we read Scripture, we neither see his trust in the Father that you're talking about, nor do we see the what what I call maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, there's a better term for it, but neither do I see the human flesh body that needed to rest that needed relationships friendships needed to eat meals so on and so forth and 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 so i think you, you both of them kind of dovetail together um and i'm saying to our evangelical brethren it's like can't he just be a man who walked on this earth who showed us a way to the father it, it can't that be enough? Does he have to be, you know, this, you know, the the painting with the halo behind him <laughs> at all times, you know, starting in the manger, you know, it's like. And, and to your point, Jim, I, I see one of the stories in 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 the New Testament that that shows both both the 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 and that you were talking about is when you have John the Baptist dies, his his cousin is killed. And he goes off to be alone. And then the crowd follows him. But what you don't see is, you, you see the man who is grieving, but then you see the man who, when the crowds come, he doesn't go, going to your point, Michael, about weakness, he doesn't go, oh, 
I leave I, me alone. I, I, I'm I can't grieving. do this right yeah. now. It, yeah. it, you ever taught when you're grieving? I mean, as a teacher, I've I've tell you, man, when you're having a bad day, that is the last thing I want to do. Yeah. And and so that shows both the human man who is grieving and the man who is also strong and you know he's not he's not weak like you were saying michael he's not he's not the uh the uh he's he's putzed out and petered out and can't uh, petered out <laughs> he started hanging around peter <laughs> i think that's an excellent point lauren yeah i guess so when we when we when the epistle to the heap because I, I gotta i'm gonna uh, uh i need to reply to my own statement because i don't want people to think i'm a mark driscoll type you know Jesus has to be, you know, going to the gym and buffed up and shit. Um, but um, when the Epistle to the Hebrews talks about the humanity of Jesus, it does it precisely in the context of tears. Okay? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but those tears are not the kind of postmodern questions yes. about the existence of God like we saw in the Andrew sequence. Lord, where are you? I don't think you're where I get you. Okay, you know, the kind of the kind of postmodern thing. A Jew wouldn't be doing that. That's not what a Jew right. does. Um, or did. In Hebrews, the tears have to do with the discipline we undergo when we're learning to forgive and it's hard, when we're learning to love and it's hard, when we have to give up our life and it's hard. That's good. Those are the tears. Wow. You yes. know, not, it, these are not just like, I'm having a bad day. Tears, you know what I mean? Like and like, like the liberals, they want to turn Jesus into this um, tweed coat wearing professor with sandals, um, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking a beer and talking platitudes, and that's their human Jesus. Why? Because that's what they look like. Whenever we want to talk about the humanity of Jesus, our first tendency is to turn him into our own humanness. So that we can go, oh, he's just like me. Oh, God likes him. God will like me. Instead of recognizing that the yeah. gospel's already declared that we are rectified, and there's not, we don't even have to think about, you know, this this whole other side of things. We just so, don't. so wait, Jesus didn't collect Star Wars people? No, only silly high school teaching <laughs> film producing wannabe. So I'm going to pull a I did not here. say that. <laughs> I retracted. That's fine. No, I love it. That's funny. I'm going to pull a Lauren. We've run out of time once again. Yes. We're a little over. Uh, but this might be a good place to pick up uh, next I, week. I agree. <laughs> and, and I like that Jim has put on the Lauren hat today because uh, today he, uh, he, he got himself into hot water and he called time. So... Uh, <laughs> We switched places today. So, all right, I, you guys. I so appreciate you guys. I appreciate this. Is, this Monday nights are something I truly look forward to very, very much. Oh, uh, same, same really? here. Me too. <laughs> anyway, for our listeners out there, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all next week.